people should know about Marx or Marxism. Marxism. I would say that anyway, regardless of this study we're doing now, which I think is very timely, as I explained last week, because of things going on right now, this so-called critical theory. But I would say that people ought to know something about Marxism anyway. That is, all the people in the churches. And why? Because Marxism overall represents one of the major competing systems of thought or philosophies in the world. In our lifetime, certainly, and before our lifetime too, it's, right, it's, it's sort of like, you know, Islam. Islam's been around a long, long time. We've seen that there's been trouble, that, there, that within Islam there have been those who have sort of made themselves, they've declared themselves enemies to, to kind of traditional Western Christian civilization. But that was going on before you came along, right? That, Islam was doing that before, long before. But it's just it's always it's it's just always there as one of the big competitors in the world, one of the big foes of of the biblical way of seeing things. I mean, there are a lot of foes to that, but Islam is just one of the big ones. It's just numerically strong. Um, well, in a sense, so is Marxism in all of its many iterations, and has been for a long, long time. Has been for a long time. You know, a lot, a lot of people fought and died in places. And what were the, what was inspiring the people they were fighting against? You know, people went off to Korea, and people went off to Vietnam, and those were people under Marxism that were sent that that they were fighting against. We know a lot of Christians in in a lot of places in the world that suffered a lot under those governments under. Marxism. So it's been around a long time. It's been a biggie. When I was a kid, we went out in the hallway and ducked for drills, for bombing drills. Why? Who were we worried about bombing us? The Russians. That's who. The Red Scare. We thought Red Dawn was going to happen right out in the right out in the soccer field, you know. And we're going to have to band together with Swayze and head up to the hills. Well, so Marxism has been one of those. It's been around. It's been a major competitor. Ideologically, it's atheistic. It sets itself against Christian sort of civilization. It's sort of opposed to most of those things that we take for granted. You can sort of see it in your mind as sort of like stars and stripes over here, hammer and sickle over there. And, you know, Rocky and uh, what's his name? Drago? Now, that you may say, well, that's oversimplistic. Not necessarily. I mean, the, the, if you line up the core uh, beliefs and commitments, they are somewhat at odds. And the fighting has been hot sometimes, and it's been cold as in a cold war so it matters anyway but this evening it matters to us because it it is a fundamental origin and source for this stuff we talked about so last week we started talking about something that is highly relevant because it's in the school system and it's in entertainment and a lot of politicians have sort of have just sort of genuflected to it and there's a sort of uh there's a strong arm sweeping across in the corporate world saying uh, you must confess your sins, you must confess this truth. And it's sort of coming out of this uh, movement that is tied to what we call critical theory. And the first two pages, I won't reiterate all of it, but you can, we can explain it. This business of groups of people, some are oppressors and some are oppressed. And you know who's who 
because of identity. And not identity in terms of character and beliefs, but identity in terms of basically just the most shallow features you possess. So color of skin and other features tells you, or gender, uh, tells you which group you're in, uh, the good or the bad. And it's very simplistic in that way, and everything comes from it. That's what's, that is what is beneath a lot of what's happening right now, and we ought to know uh, the distinctions here. So where did it come from, and where did the ideas uh, spring from? This guy, Marx, is a major source of it. So that's my reason why we're doing Marx, okay? This feels feel more like one of my classes, okay? Because I've, for years, I've, I always, you know, Marx comes up. I mean, he's taught in, in the classes I teach, he'll, he'll come up. And, I, and I, I have no problem going into it because I figure in higher ed, at least, if, uh, if people are going to get influenced, as they certainly are <laughs> in other classes, by Marxist ways of thinking, then uh, I want to at least give a counterbalance to uh, not to slander the beliefs of the man or to get any of it wrong, but in fact to just sort of uh, uh, to do something other than I don't know what, what in some cases is what they call a hagiography, you know, where you sort of uh, for some people he's almost a saint. But who was this man? Well, as you see, I give you extensive notes on the man. Marx, a Jewish man. Jewish by background, from a line of rabbis, you see his father's name there, Herschel Mordecai Levi. If that ain't a Jewish name, I mean, what is a Jewish name? Uh, but he changed it for professional reasons, and and also changed and convert, ostensibly converted to the Prussian State Church for professional reasons. I've always thought it was uh, one of the weirdest and weakest moves for someone to convert to something for social pressure reasons. It's like, I want a better job, I want to move up in the world, I want someone to marry me, so I'll just, quote, convert. Of course, from a biblical point of view, that is no conversion at all. A conversion of that kind is not even a real conversion. Uh, but that's what he did. So, uh, no, so there's your first sign that maybe Marx isn't going to grow up with a, with a staunch, deeply rooted Judaic worldview. The fact that his dad just converts uh, for those reasons. He goes to study university. He studies a guy named Hegel. Now you're thinking, I don't know who that is, but since I taught philosophy, I do know who that is, and let me just say, you ain't missing much, okay? But he, However, he was extremely influential in his time, this guy Hegel. And, is it, and it's sort of an interesting view that he had. Um, what Marx got from him was this idea that Hegel had this wild view of history, how history is this long story that unfolds according to this um, these conflicts, but the conflicts are the conflicts of ideas primarily. So what Hegel would say is there's this constant, what he called a dialectic. What's that mean? It's like a like an ongoing conversation of of views. So he would say there would be this uh, dominant viewpoint, dominant way of thinking, and he would call that the thesis. And then he say then there would then there would arise an opposing point of view or different uh, something that opposes it, and that's the antithesis. And then as they interact, the, the, the apple cart gets upset, and in the next generation, you've got a new view that he called the synthesis. But guess what that just becomes? The new thesis. And that's how history moves. And, and Hegel's view had that going. Not only that, Hegel believed that um, that was moving 
that there was a trajectory to this whole dialectic. It was moving upward. It was getting better. It was moving toward truth because he had this spiritual, quasi-religious view to it. I don't know what it was. I don't know where he got it, frankly, because uh, I'm no expert on Hegel. But, but the bottom line was that in Hegel's mind, there's, there's an evolving um, progress to the ideas moving toward the revelation of what he called absolute spirit, like where we, we get at the truth. So it's a happy ending, right? Marx thought, well, wow, what a great idea. Only, only he would change how he saw it. So 23, he earns a doctorate. People start to say, well, this guy's pretty sharp. Uh, but, but, he, but he did associate with some, quote, radicals. Right, because he also was in the cities, started to see some big cities. He saw this is the age of industrialization, big factories, the beginnings of kind of like the, early, the wheels of early capitalism start to really move. And then Marx encounters this other philosopher, who I also remember reading about and not necessarily being terribly impressed with his ideas, and it, another German guy named Ludwig Feuerbach. His whole thing was, some people say he was a pessimist and whatever, but here's what here's what he did. He took Hegel's ideas and he stripped the spiritual part out. So suddenly Hegel's thing about history didn't have this spiritual undercurrent where you're moving toward truth. Instead, what he did was he made he made the focus material things only. Material factors. So that really all this stuff about ideas and grand ideas, that's just all stuff that comes out of people's fevered brains. Um, it basically just comes down to people's material life and their material circumstances. That's what drives history forward. So Marx would be very influenced by this because he would certainly be a materialist. Uh, so Marx, then, uh, because he's radical, he has he gets run out of places. He has to leave Germany and the Prussian areas. He winds up, um, uh, uh, he goes to Paris, but then things aren't, you know, there's a little heat there. Uh, he met another guy there. This guy, Saint Simon, Saint, not as in he was sainted by the Catholic Church, it's some part of his name, who taught him that class conflict was the key thing. Ah, class conflict, big deal. He also formed this lifelong friendship with a guy named Friedrich Engels. Engels was the co-writer of the Communist Manifesto. Engels uh, was the son of a wealthy German guy, an industrialist, manufacturer, and he was really into workers' rights because, you know, they saw exploitation of workers in, the, in this period of time. So in 1850, Marx goes to London. One of the great ironies that Marx, in order to have the freedom to write about his ideas and to spread his ideas, um, he had to go to a place that was, you know, that, that, that provided the blanket covering of free exchange of ideas uh, in a free market in order to be able to do that. that. That irony should never be lost. And I see it repeated very often today with people. Um, it's sort of like you you sit in the lap and slap the face of the one in whose lap you sit because uh, you wouldn't get to do the things and write the things and say the things if you were in another place. Um, anyway, different sermon. So Marx then, uh, he's in London and he would spend the rest of his life there. He would go down to that library and he would research his bunch and he would write. He would work on his big, his big project, his big project, Das Kapital, which basically I think just kind of means money <laughs> in a way. 
So he founds these movements, and he becomes sort of at least the intellectual leader. He didn't run around giving speeches and stuff. He wasn't really good at that. But he was a writer. But his ideas were powerful in written form, and people would make him like their godfather, his, their ideological hero. So the International Workingmen's Association, or the Social Democratic Party, he supported the infamous Paris Commune. You should read about the Paris Commune sometime. It's fascinating, especially in light of you know, what's going on in some of you of our cities. The Paris Commune was Chaz before Chaz. Uh, after the Prussians defeated you know, the French and Napoleon III got hauled away, uh, it was sort of like a period of crisis. So a bunch of, a bunch of people inspired by Marx uh, took over Paris. And for 70 days, they, they controlled it. They owned it. They ruled it. They went in the Capitol building. They, they said, okay, now we're going to build. Marx supported them. Yay! He, he gave them support. Now, you know, the uh, 19th century was a little different from our time. So when the guys at, uh, when, the, when the leadership over in Versailles decided to go ahead and just put an end to that, um, they didn't, let's put it this way, they didn't go ask them nicely. Okay, they put an end to it the way that people used to put an end to those things. So a bunch of them died. Well, um, Marx told them that they should have gone, they should have marched on Versailles, and they should have overtaken the Bank of uh, France uh, as well. Um, but Marx then was working on Das Kapital. But here's the weird thing: is he, he, he didn't, he neglected his family. He, he lived in these meager conditions. Um, bat, he didn't, apparently didn't bathe a lot. I don't know. Had that long beard you always see him with. Only, you know, unlike David here, who grooms his beard well, I, I presume Marx apparently did not. He had stuff living. In there, he's kind of like uh, what, what was the wizard in the Hobbit? Um, it, what was the guy's name? Gandalf. No, 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 not Gandalf. The one, the one that had the uh, let birds nest in his. Oh, oh, Radagast. Radagast the Brown. Radagast the Brown. That's how Gandalf would say it, right? Uh, I think Marx was dirty like that. They say. Now look, hey, to each his own. But it's a strange thing though that someone of such influence lived. The way that he lived, he would write, but mostly mostly Engels, who had wealth, supported him. Kind of lived off his friend. Sounds like a Marxist thing to do. Uh, he commented a lot on things. He he had thoughts on the American Civil War and other stuff. Well, um, the the conditions that he lived in were not did not promote long life and health. In fact, his wife passed away. So did his daughter, and within a year he did also. Um, he wasn't celebrated, as it says. He had a modest grave, 11 people at his funeral. Ingalls said some nice things about him, and that was it. It would, And he would sit in a, in a modest grave, his, his remains, for 70 years until Marxism got gained more popular influence again. Kind of, it, Marxism kind of goes in waves and ups and downs. You know, it, It's sort of like, well, it's like, uh, it's like if you have a condition that flares up. <laughs> Marxism is a condition that flares up. So here recently, in the last few weeks, we've had a flare-up. Right? Like those hemorrhoids are really acting up. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. But, you know, they, it flares up and it cools down. So, 70 years after the fact, the Communist Party of Great Britain gave him his big, mm, big stone, you know, granite head of him and with his famous words, Workers of the World Unite. So, there's the man. That's the guy. That's Marx. Um, so, a word about his influence on the next page here. You probably know this. I think a lot of, I think younger people don't always know this. The 20th century Marxist story. They kind of know the 21st century. They, they know Marxism as maybe it's been talked about um, in the last 10 years, you know. But 
It was talked about when I was a kid, but it was talked about differently. And it was talked about in the 50s, for some of you might remember. It was talked about a little differently then, too. But in the 20th century, Marx's ideas became... I don't, th- I don't think he could have imagined. I don't think he could have imagined the influence that his ideas would have, that his name would be attached in faraway places. On the other side of the world, they would have murals of him, you know, and cite him. And so they say that at one point in the 20th century, almost a fifth of the world's population lived under governments that were Marxist. They didn't all look exactly the same, but they were Marxist. Uh, Marx didn't necessarily... I don't, they, you know, there's no indication that he thought, hey, I wonder how underdeveloped Asian countries would do with this. He really didn't imagine that so much. He was thinking of Europe. So it's kind of weird because the European nations didn't necessarily buy in. But what do you know? China did. And so did, so did Russia and some other places in, around Asia and, and in South America. But I don't think he would have foreseen that so much. Um, peop, there, Marx, there's, there's always been a secret hankering, a secret love for Marx in some circles. They, I mean, through the 60s, you know, a lot, a lot, of, the, a lot of the flower children and all that, you know, in the 60s, went ahead and got degrees and got on and, and, and you know, became professors. <laughs> and they never, they never let their love for Marx go, really. They kind of always, they always kind of held, you know, they, they had a candle burning uh, for, for Marx. Um, and in some places you would have gone, you know, you would, you would have, they would have just admitted it as much. Now, we had some times and periods when there was sort of like, um, you know, a little bit of a witch hunt mentality. And, you know, we all know about the hearings and McCarthyism and all that and secret communists. Some, so, by the way, some of the people were, were actually collaborators and communists. Some, I mean, I'm not sure who was who exactly. Um, but that was then. But you have, um, you have now today, right now, this thing we've been talking about, this critical theory. And here we are with yet another very influential philosophy. It's spreading all over social media. People are jumping on board. And it is very much Marxist. And that's not a slander, by the way. That's not just some guy saying, oh, you're just calling them names. No, that's, just a, that's, that's what they say. When I say they, I don't mean just every single person you meet who might be on the street. And even if they carry a sign or even if they march, they may not. I mean the people who, I mean the people behind these movements. So the people who, who write the articles and essays and the websites and the people who actually are the thought leaders. They are Marxists. It wasn't even long ago, a few days ago, uh, one of them just, I don't, this might have been from years ago, a few years back, but... One of their leaders. There's a video going around. I watched it. And she goes, "Yeah, I'm me and the me and the other founder. We're trained Marxists. Like that's what we're that's that's our thing. There's no shame there. They're not they're not running away from it, which I sort of appreciate in a way. I, I like to know. Uh, no sense in hiding that kind of stuff. Um, I mentioned that there are a lot of these books used in universities that teach critical theory. So here's so here's a selection I put here for you uh, from one of these um, courses. Uh, you can, uh, a course, I didn't list the university, but you would all know it. And a course entitled Marx and Critical Theory. That's what the course is called. So I looked at their uh, course description, and there it is. You see it right there. A critical theory has a distinctive aim, it says, to unmask the ideology falsely justifying some form of social or economic oppression. 
Does it sound like last week what I told you about? What's on the first couple of pages? To reveal it as ideology, and in so doing, to contribute to the task of ending that oppression. Remember I said, it's not just enough that you say, oh, the systems are oppressive. You've got to dismantle them. That's what the activist is supposed to do. And so, it says, a critical theory aims to provide a kind of enlightenment about social and economic life that is itself emancipatory. We're going to free people from these systems. Persons come to recognize the oppression they are suffering as oppression and are thereby partly freed from it. And then it says, Marx's critique of capitalist economic relations is arguably just this kind of critical theory. So they're saying, you see, that's what Marx was about, and now that's what we're about. Now, he was mostly, he was mostly looking at it from the point of view of the capitalists and all that, but we're looking at it from, from a point of view not just of that, but of other systems. Basically all systems, if you want to get down to it. Everything. The entirety of all the government and all of its branches and everything in the entire police force and the system of the university and the church and all of it. For some people today, everything. Everything. It's all bad. It's all subject to critical theory, which means it's all oppressive. Uh, we must recognize it as such, and we must free everyone from it by smashing it. So... Um, what are some of the main ideas that come from Marx for this critical theory? So I give you a few. And the first one is this idea of class struggle. So the critical theorists are into identity groups. They don't talk about class. Marx talked about classes. They, the, the critical theorists talk about identity categories, intersectional categories of identity. So they don't talk about you're from this class or this class. Marx always talking about the bourgeoisie, borrowing some French words here. The bourgeoisie. Those are like the, those are the, those are the owners of things. They own the land and the factories, and those are rich cats. You know what I mean? And then there's all the workers, the what he called the proletariat, just the working class, the poor people. Got to get up every day, go into those factories, and do what they're supposed to do for a, for a, for a small amount of pay. That's what he saw in his time as the big class struggle. The critical theorists aren't talking in those terms. They're they're using Marx's ideas, but now they're looking at other things. They're not saying you're the bourgeoisie. They're saying you're male. Or you're female. That's those two categories. You're you're white. You're black. You're brown. They're real sophisticated about racial types, by the way. It's like three colors, you know. Uh, very biologically exacting, huh? Um, you're 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 straight. You're gay. You're or even you're trans. Some of you're going trans. What do you mean? Well, <clears throat> let's just not belabor the point. But most of you know what I mean. I mean, this, these are the categories now. These are the categories now. Uh, but it's the same. It's a class struggle still. So the Communist Manifesto opened with these words. This is Marx and Engels talking, 1847. They say the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles: freedman and slave, patrician and plebeian, lord and serf, guildmaster and journeyman. In a word, oppressor and oppressed stood in constant opposition to one another carried on an uninterrupted, now hidden, now open fight, a fight that each time ended, either in a revolutionary reconstitution of society at large or in the common ruin of the contending classes. Class struggle. They're fighting, they're fighting, it's a class struggle. In every case, the ones on the bottom, the oppressed, finally rise up, overturn the whole thing, revolution breaks out, and a new... There's a new system 
But in that new system, there will now become new class struggles, and that'll keep going until we get to the great culmination. I'll get to that in a minute, of what the wonderful great culmination is, where it's moving to. There is supposed to be a happy ending here as well. The second thing they get, I think, from uh, Marxism today that comes from that is the idea of materialism. Remember this now, materialism. So now you might meet people today who are part of the critical theory kind of idea or who are inspired by it who do have religious backgrounds of some kind. They might even go to church somewhere, maybe. And they might use language that sounds kind of spiritual, even Christian. That's possible sometimes. But again, most of the main architects of it are not like that. They are more like Marx in that they're just materialists in how they see the world. They interpret the world without thinking about God. You hear little reference to God, the authority of God, revealed things, scripture. Um, they, they, will, they will very often be, whether they set, they'll either profess it or just by, by lifestyle and other, the other things they write make it known that they're atheists, like Marx was. Marx, of course, remember, took Hegel's views and, and then said, all the spiritualism is out of it. That's what Feuerbach taught him. The dialectic isn't between ideas. It's between, it's between material processes of diff- people in their circumstance. That's why Marx called his view dialectical materialism. He was a materialist. Marx thought that religion played a function, a psychological function, to help the suffering get through it all uh, because the oppressed need some help because they're oppressed and religion just basically gives them some psychological you know um, aspirin uh, and so when Marx wrote a critique about Hegel and he loved Hegel's view but he critiqued him on this here's what he said and these are famous words of Marx some maybe some of his most famous words quote religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature the heart of a heartless world and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. The abolition of religion as the illusory happiness of the people is the demand for their real happiness. So you see, he doesn't think there's anything to it. He thinks that's all just, we just, the oppressed make up religion to make them, to, to help their, help their life. And he actually was condemned much of religion as, as feeding into that. All that stuff about Jesus says, take up your cross and turn the other... Why, that's just oppressed talk right there. You know? What Jesus should have said is, rise up and overthrow! <laughs> you know, that's what he should have said. If Mar- Marx, Marx would criticize him and say that's what he should have said. Uh, enough of that stuff about the meek and the humble. Nonsense. The meek and the humble just keep getting oppressed. Uh, if you knew people from, from Soviet lands or Cuba, or Venezuela, you know that atheism was the official the official position of the state. And it was often very much enforced. Churches would be... Um, once, once, a, once a revolution happened in one of these places, and communism now came in, what they did was the state took control of all churches immediately. They would seize all churches. And, and priests would often be... Um, uh, in fact, in some cases, they were held... Hostage, they'd ask the Roman Catholic Church to pay, pay ransom on him or whatever. Uh, some cases worse, but, but no, there's no no allowance for uh, for any kind of religious freedom, because because it's materialistic. It's supposed to be materialistic, and so you have people like one of the influential writers whose name you might hear if you're reading on these things, um, 
I noticed there's this writer I see a lot about named Ta-Nehisi Coates. Very well known, very well read by a lot of these activists. He was the son of a Black Panther, and he openly professes his atheism. The one area where he where he interestingly differs is, you know, Marx believed that um, that there was a utopianism in the future that we'd get to, but this guy Coates doesn't necessarily think so. He's kind of a sad atheist. He's more like Feuerbach. He's pessimistic about it all, uh, which may which may make him a more honest one, to be honest, <laughs> if you ask me. But when you listen a lot of times to the screaming protester of today, the social justice person, what they will often be saying will all will be devoid of talk about divine justice and or big picture stuff. They don't think in in big terms. They just it's all very much here and now materialistic stuff. They don't they don't sound like Martin Luther King Jr. Okay, who who spoke, you know, who's a minister. And so Christian terms and Christian ideas and scripture were always part of. Uh, his speeches, but not for these guys now. Not for these guys. Uh, they don't. They don't think that way, and they don't do that kind of stuff. You don't get Christian themes. I don't hear a lot of redemption with them. I'm not even sure there is such a thing as redemption for them. It's almost just like whatever you do, it's bad and it's terrible. Now you can grovel and you can beg, and you can try to say we've sinned, we've sinned, which is terrible, and you can do mea culpas, and there's a lot of that going around right now. But I never see anyone say, wonderful, you are now restored, brother. This never happens. It's almost as if um, you're supposed to do the acts of penance, but you get no payoff. You get no payoff for it. There's no reconciliation in the future uh, in this view, I think. And certainly I don't see anything about forgiveness. The idea that you could say wrongs were done and we're supposed to forgive, um, no, that's kind of blasphemy in this, in this worldview. You don't do that. True, as I said in the beginning, you will hear them. some of them use this kind of language. And what, what we'll get to down the road is, is the encroachments of this in churches. And when it comes into churches, obviously they don't, I mean, obviously when it comes into churches, they don't say, hooray for Marx and his atheism. Uh, they Christianize the Marxist view somewhat. Although I would still say, I mean, we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but I would still say that for some of them, they're the way this, the way they, um, the way they play all this out and what they think we should do, still sounds like they're operating on, on some kind of an atheist view. Like in other words, where, even for some Christian writers, I wonder, where's the redemption and the forgiveness? Where's the unity in Christ? We're all supposed to have. You know, there's some really glaring doctrinal gaping holes for some of the so-called Christian writers who say that who who say they take this up. Um, so again, though, as you say, we could say that's a false view. But so materialism is part of it. Um, the next one is the re the idea of activism or revolution. It's one thing to just have point of view. It's another thing to take to the streets for it. What we see today, though, is of course that people are not just sitting around. There, there might have been a time, in fact there was, when, when I knew for years that these ideas were moving around in departments, in English departments, in sociology departments, in some philosophy departments. I knew this was there. It's been there. It's always been there. But, you know, then you walk out into Main Street and the everyday life of people and you're like, yeah, nobody really thinks this stuff. But what critical theorists are doing now, this movement right now, that's inspiring a lot of this, it's not just in the ivory tower. 
It's out on the street. It's doing stuff and not good stuff. In case you haven't been paying attention to what's going on in the news, it ain't so good. In some ways, they just go off half-cocked. It's like, we're oppressed and we're mad. And then it's like they just sort of go aimlessly to do they know not what exactly. We just know stuff's got to burn. Um, it's very, it's not well thought out, of course. But that's that's they get that from Marx, though. Marx was different from other philosophers in that he said, get out and make it happen. He called for it. Workers of the world unite. Get out there and do it. So, so you see here in 1845, he wrote a, he wrote a series of statements on his another one of his idols, Feuerbach, a philosopher. But he differed with him. And here, how did he differ with him? He differed with him mostly because he said. He said, you know, Feuerbach uh, was too theoretical. He talked about all this, but he didn't, he didn't like get people out of their chair to go do stuff. Marx was more like a preacher who says, brother, we don't just come in here and read the word. and live. We go out there and we do the word. That's Marx. Go, go thou and do. Go thou and put some feet to this. And so Marx says that, this, that the views of Feuerbach, he had some good views, but he says they have to be put into, quote, revolutionary practice got to go do stuff and the last thesis the last thesis on in that in the in those theses on Feuerbach the last one reads like that exactly what you see there philosophers he says have hitherto only interpreted the world in various ways the point is to change it to change it so that's why they're out there doing it that's why that's why they're calling for stuff have you seen some of the demands of people today some of them are, uh, let's just say they dream big. They're not just saying we'd like to see some reforms here and there. It's like, yeah, uh, these movements now are, are emphasizing revolutionary activity, and they get it from Marx. Well, so the last thing I have here that, that is from Marx that I think is a major influence from Marx is the utopianism. The utopianism. Uh, because Marx thinks there's a dialectical process, one system leading to the next, to the next, but what we finally get to in the end uh, is we get to something good because there's a culminating goal that this is moving to. And if we now, in his time he said, if we now can upset this system, if we can overthrow this system, the capitalist system, then what we can have is what he called a dictatorship of the proletariat, that is the oppressed working class, temporarily, They'll take over, and things won't be so pretty for a little while because you know transitions are hard. But what it'll do is it'll settle into and it'll usher in a better thing. This there'll be this there'll be this equilibrium that we get, this balance. And what it will be is, in his mind, a classless society. There are no more classes now. We're all equals. That was what he meant by communism. It's a wonderful world, and you know. Um, you can hear Lenin playing, not Vladimir, not just yet, but John, uh, in the background almost, can't you? That hymn that we talked that the, the, that's the theme song for this, this idea. Just imagine it, right? No one, everyone, it's a brotherhood of man. Isn't it, don't, don't we all want that world, isn't it great? That's, if there is any kind of thing that's inspiring people who think that they're doing that they're active, that their activism is for a good cause. This is what they think the cause is leading to. This is what they want. And isn't it a wonderful idea? Well, sure, in theory, I suppose it is. Um, but uh, this is the stated goals. This is when you read 
about from the people who are inspired by the critical theory what they want. They want the mob to overthrow all the systems. Um, they want they want to change it all. And yeah, there'll be a little chaos at first. For a while, the cities will burn a little bit. And you know, but in their minds, they think, yeah, but see, once well, they're going, just give it time, and we'll get to the peace, love, and uh, and equality that we want. That's what's going to happen. Now, so there, so there you go. Well, um, briefly, briefly, let me just say here what you already can tell, which are some real problems with this. And as you know, if you try to build something, and if we see this as a religious movement, and it almost sort of is. If you, if you, I've seen some of the videos, you know, of some of the people out on the streets, and they sound like religious zealots. I mean, they, they're emotional, and they're, yeah, they want to do it. And, but, but if you build any kind of a movement on faulty views, then, then it's, there's going to be trouble, and there are some problems. I do say in that little note that it's not like Marx was a completely blind fool. I mean, he, he wasn't an idiot. He saw some things that were true. Everybody gets some things right. I mean, he, he looked around him and he saw some things that he was right about. And I list a few of them there. So that in his time, he saw that the work conditions in those factories in London, they were not good conditions. Before the law caught up to these things, the early factories that were built were, were brutal in how they, how they, were, they were dangerous. And people died in those places. And they, the, you know, we, we really benefit today from all the years 